Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. From Vermont Public, this is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane, and I'm here with one of my colleagues, Kevin Trevelin. How's it going, Kevin? Good, good. How are you, Josh? I'm good. I'm excited for your BLS debut. That's right, uh, with a story about prohibition. I normally work on the daily news side of things, so it was a lot of fun to be able to really dive into something and spend a lot of time with one particular story. Well, let's get into it. And for starters, you're going to introduce us to a guy named Dennis. Yeah, Dennis Fuller uh, grew up in Canaan, up in the Northeast Kingdom, and he actually worked in customs and immigration uh, over in Derby Line, um, which is on the border of Vermont and Quebec. And when I was talking to Dennis for this story, he said that there's kind of a feeling you get when you're you know, looking for something that's not supposed to be there. One of the border patrolmen told me it was like, he says, the hair on the back of your neck starts to stand up. You can almost feel something isn't right in this situation. And, and that he was right. Dennis is 75 years old now, and he's pretty familiar with sections of the northern border. Yes, because of his work with customs and immigration, but also because of his experience growing up in this area, an experience that followed him throughout his life. Like in the 70s, when Dennis started working for the government, a colleague searched his personnel records, and after punching Dennis's name into the computer... He hit enter, and the screen lit up, and it said, suspected of smuggling beer across Lake Wallace in a boat. I looked at it, and I didn't know what to say. I never did, exactly. Dennis says back when he was a teenager, he'd sometimes buy a couple quarts of Labatt beer in Canada because the drinking age was lower. Then he and his friends would sneak them across the border into the U.S. Before beer, it was Canadian firecrackers crammed down his pants. As a retired customs man, Dennis is aware of the irony. Nobody even thought about reporting to customs and wasn't really enforced because it was something done on both sides and nobody was hurt by it. Dennis's small-scale shenanigans aren't too surprising, though, given what his uncles were up to back in the day. Charlie and Pete were the two biggest known smugglers of the family. That is alcohol smugglers, way back during Prohibition in the 1920s. He says his uncles used to stock up on booze in Canada, then load it into a rubber raft right before getting to the border. They dropped the raft into Leech Creek, which flowed south, then let it drift into the United States while they moseyed into Vermont contraband-free. And uh, evidently one day it got hooked up, the raft got hooked up in some brush, and one of the younger brothers had gone up looking for it. He found it, took out sufficient liquor for himself and hid that and then let the rest and let him know where the, where the raft was. Dennis says his uncles also used to load booze into a car, drive through the tricky back roads crisscrossing the region, then hide it in the basement of the house that he later grew up in. But he didn't learn about that family lore until later in his life. It wasn't until I moved back here about 15 years ago that my aunt's husband started talking and was telling some of the stories about how my uncles smuggled. 
Dennis is now in charge of Canaan's Historical Society, which is housed in a 200-year-old library. He shows me around, and there's history all over the place, including some rusty tools on the wall. But this is more what we're known for, is the logging industry. Their collection doesn't have much on prohibition, and Dennis says nobody really asks the Historical Society about it. This is about all we have for pictures. This is the only binder we have, uh, pictures and stuff. Yet we know people like Dennis's uncles were around, and there are old newspaper articles about agents chasing rum runners through Canaan, guns blazing. Maybe bootlegging was taken for granted, part of a well-worn pattern of life in much of the NEK. That's what I'm thinking as Dennis peers at his one binder of Prohibition-era records. He reads the words of Joan Cowan, whose father was a customs agent during the 20s. Smuggling was always a fact of life along the border. It is said that beef to feed the British Army was smuggled north to Canada during the War of 1812, an actual act of treason. Wool Wool and sheep were smuggled across the border after that. Margarine during World War II, then refrigerators when they became hard to find after the war ended. But probably the most notorious of the smuggled products were the bottles of beer, wine, and hard liquor which came into the United States during the years of Prohibition. That happened across the Northeast Kingdom. But Dennis wasn't the only person I spoke to who didn't have many stories from that era. A lot of people who've spent most of their lives there only heard bits and pieces of it growing up. Like our winning question asker, Nathan Bangs. He grew up in Newark, a town in Caledonia County north of St. Johnsbury. He spent his childhood on skis, cross-country skis, downhill skis, ski-jumping skis, and helped work the farm his family bought in 1970. We had cows and we had sheep and pigs and did a lot of haying in the summertime and um, that sort of thing. Nathan also remembers lots of old-timers who would regale him with dramatic tales from the Prohibition era, like smugglers who took full advantage of the legal alcohol sitting on Canadian store shelves. They claimed to have flown planes down from Quebec in the winter and dropped stockpiles of booze on the ponds and lakes of northern Vermont. We assume that these stories had some basis in fact, but they were also known to stretch the truth quite a bit, too. Nathan also remembers something curious tied to his family's farm. It had to do with an old sugar shack on the property next to a nice maple orchard. After it burned down, Nathan's family rebuilt it, but not before finding some old copper coils buried in a pile of rotten wood and rusty metal. There's really no part of making maple syrup I know that needs uh, copper coils for cooling. So we uh, assume that they were maybe potentially used for, for making moonshine. All the stories made Nathan curious. What role did Vermont play during Prohibition? Welcome to Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience. Today, reporter Kevin Trevelin tackles a question about the history of prohibition in Vermont. When the federal government banned alcoholic beverages in the 1920s and early 30s, Vermonters took matters into their own hands. From bars that stretched across the Canadian border. So you would enter through the United States, go to Canada and drink legally, um, and then come back to exit. To home entrepreneurs. And I'd hear somebody, hey, Bill, get up, hey, Bill. And I'd go to another lookout and, oh, yes, oh, yes, Bill, Bill's got a customer. To straight-up robbery. They went down to his potato cellar, grabbed all the alcohol, put it in their car, and sort of drove off waving at people. 
Very few who lived through Prohibition are still alive today, nearly a hundred years later. And so stories from that time have become the stuff of family lore, passed down over the generations. They didn't make it up over there. Right the Roxy Theater. Yeah, that's what I thought. They had a house upstairs. We have support from Vermont Public Sustaining Members. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Federal prohibition lasted from 1920 to 1933 in the United States, but multiple experts told me that to understand what this time was like in Vermont, I needed to flip a few pages back in the history book. Turns out Vermonters have always known how to drink, like really hit the sauce. In 1811, a local paper told the story of a gin distillery burning down in the town of Peacham in Caledonia County. But the paper assured readers not to worry. There were 27 stills still in operation in the single town of Peacham. And that was where the now popular quote from the Bennington um, reporter said, if not with milk and honey, certainly this land overflows with gin and whiskey. That's Susan Evans McClure. She's executive director of the Lake Champlain Maritime Museum and a big time prohibition nerd. Overflow with gin and whiskey, Vermont did. By 1820, there were over 200 distilleries in the state. Imagine if there was one for nearly each town in Vermont today. Susan says one historian studied old records and found that in 1830, the average Vermont man drank four or five shots of liquor a day. Seriously, four or five shots a day. Not to mention the 15 or so gallons of hard cider they were also guzzling each year. But Vermonters weren't just trying to get loose all the time. Alcohol was actually considered part of a proper diet, a shelf-stable source of calories in an era when food could be scarce. Still, Susan says heavy alcohol consumption back then crippled many families. There's lots of documented evidence of usually men leaving their families, leaving their families penniless. Women aren't, in a pos- aren't allowed to work in the, some of these areas where they can make money, and it's leaving a lot of women and children destitute. So, in 1853, Vermont banned the sale of liquor statewide, though of course hard cider was still all right. Think of this ban as a precursor to the federal prohibition that would come nearly 70 years later. The state law was largely ineffective. Booze found its way over state lines, and pharmacists exploited loopholes by selling it in medicine bottles. I mean, hey, a hot toddy is medicine when you're sick, right? At the turn of the century, Vermonters grew tired of the tight liquor law. When Percival Clement, then publisher of the Rutland Herald, ran for governor, he made repealing the ban a huge part of his campaign. And he gave a speech in 1902, and what he said was, The prohibitionist, while he is not always able to control himself, even in the matter of drinking intoxicating liquors, seeks to control his neighbor, not by precept and example, but by argument and moral suasion. That process is too slow to suit his ideas of progress. And besides, sometimes his neighbor tells him to mind his own business. But the prohibitionist seems to think it is his business to attend to that of his neighbor. In other words, teetotal all you want, buddy, but don't say I can't enjoy a nip in the comfort of my own home. Percival Clement lost the governor's race, but the state rolled back the ban on liquor anyway in 1903. 
New rules let individual towns decide whether to serve alcohol. And in 1919, Clement finally won the governorship. 1919. You know, not great timing for the guy who ran against banning alcohol. Because that same year, Congress ratified the 18th Amendment, and federal prohibition would soon be the law of the land. And then by the time federal prohibition comes along to Vermont, they're kind of over it. They don't want the state to tell them what to do. They certainly don't want the federal government to tell them what to do. And Vermont's one of the later states to adopt the amendment that puts prohibition into effect nationwide. The nationwide booze ban would come online, all while Vermonters still had a hangover from the statewide liquor ban that had just ended. And this time, they couldn't even fall back on beer or hard cider. It was all forbidden. No matter, though, the Northeast Kingdom was a natural corridor for smuggling alcohol. The border there generally wasn't as rugged as, say, northern Maine or northern New Hampshire. And there were also some conveniently located rivers and lakes that stretched from Canada into Vermont. Canada's right up around the corner. Canada? Yeah. Yeah. Scott Wheeler lives in Derby and has written two books about prohibition in Vermont. You might recognize his voice from past episodes of BLS. Do you want to go sit right up there? You don't think the restaurant would mind? My best friend is married to the owner's owner's sister. I'm meeting him in downtown Newport, out behind a restaurant overlooking Lake Memphremagog. The vast majority of it is in Quebec. Lake Memphremagog means basically vast expanse of water in Abenaki. We're here because bootleggers used the lake to smuggle booze, either with boats or cars if the ice was thick enough. Scott says police patrolled Lake Champlain pretty heavily back in the day. Memphis Magog? There's not as much evidence. He says there was a Canadian diver who claimed to have gone below the surface thousands of times looking for souvenirs. He said he found several catches of alcohol that you could tell had been dumped overboard in a rush because they, they, they all fell together. He said there was plenty of evidence below the waves that shows that prohibition was alive and well on the, uh, on the lake. The other reason the Northeast Kingdom became a smuggling hotspot? The area had rail lines running into Canada and roads. Someone joked to me that during prohibition, thirsty Americans paid for a lot of new roads in Quebec. Some of the routes were remote, winding through dense woods. That could help bootleggers hiding from the authorities, but only if smugglers knew where to go. So crime rings in big cities like Boston paid Vermonters and the NEK to run booze for them. Outsiders tried to entice locals because of our knowledge of the roads. In one of Scott's books, called Booze in the Kingdom, Voices from Prohibition, he interviews Clarence Morse, who grew up in the border community of North Troy during the 20s. The big people, they would often try to hire young local men, and they would go up like high water, Quebec, where there was a bar, and the young men like Clarence would be up there drinking. And uh, he said the money was outrageous compared to the few dollars he made a week working as a road crew. And he just said it, was, it wasn't something he wanted to do. It's something that he just felt he needed to do. In those years, men like Clarence would frequent these bars called line houses. They were built right on the border so Americans could have a drink without breaking the law, technically. Susan Evans McClure, the historian from the Maritime Museum, told me about a particularly infamous one. It was run by a woman named Lillian Minor Shipley, also known as Queen Lil. It became known as Queen's Place, and it was really a business based on alcohol and prostitution. So you would enter through the United States, go to Canada and drink legally, um, and then come back to exit. Somehow, Queen Lil always knew when there was going to be a raid, and they there may, sometimes were raids from the United States, sometimes were raids from the Canadian side. 
and all the patrons would just walk to the other side. These days you can visit Kingdom Brewing in Newport and get her namesake beer, called A Night in Queen Lil's. 10% alcohol, though. Don't want to overdo it. Anyway, a linehouse wasn't the only place to get a drink during Prohibition. The Vermont Historical Society produced a radio special in the 80s featuring people who lived near the border when it was supposed to be dry. Oh, yes, we remember the bootleggers. I guess we do. Newport native Addie Kelsey was interviewed for the piece. From her memories, it didn't sound too hard to stumble into a glass of something. Oh, yeah, we knew almost all of them. They used to come down the lake, and uh, right across the road from us was a guy that sold it, and I'd hear somebody... Hey, Bill. Bill, get up. Get up. Hey, Bill. And I'd go to the window and look out, and oh, yes, oh, yes, Bill's got a customer. (laughs) Not every cop took Prohibition seriously. A lot of them didn't want to bust their neighbors for drinking when it had been common practice for decades. But some agents were vigilant. Old newspapers show photos of seized booze laid out in nice displays by triumphant lawmen. The cops couldn't pose with their prize if they didn't make the bust, though. Merritt Carpenter grew up in St. Albans near the turn of the 20th century and was also interviewed for the Historical Society radio special. As a boy, he remembered seeing a female bootlegger with a nice car. Not a Model T, but a Moon Roadster, something with a little more juice. And when she came out of the house, she didn't look like any farmer's housewife. She even put on high heels. And she was an independent, ran all by herself. I saw her one day in action. Action as in a car chase with customs men pursuing the bootlegger. The scene was a construction site on a bridge next to a railroad crossing. We could hear the uh, train whistling for the crossings. All of a sudden, she came down through in her big moon roadster, going like hell. She was lucky. There was nobody on the bridge. It was one way, but it didn't bother her any. She could see the way was clear. She went right through. Nearly tore down the guardrail. She didn't hit anything. She was just going so fast. Merritt says the train was speeding down the track, coming right toward the chase. And right behind her come the uh, customs men, and they go right across the bridge. She made it to that crossing just ahead of that engine. Then the engine went across the crossing, and the customs men screeched to a halt, sideways in the road, every which way, you know. Just barely got stopped, and the train didn't even bother to stop. I mean, it was all over, you know. They had to sit there while the train went by, and she was off down the road and long out of sight. Not every smuggler was so lucky. Scott Wheeler's books include stories of rum runners getting shot by the police during car chases or crashing into trees and dying. There was also the threat of prison. Scott says even his own grandfather served time for bootlegging. If I ever break a law, I want it memorable. And when my grandfather broke a law, and probably the only law he ever broke in his life, at least he, he made it memorable, bottling liquor in baby bottles with nipples on and all and selling it. And I'm not going to say I'm proud of him. When we come back, more stories of border crossing hijinks and a spotlight on Vermont's most infamous Prohibition era town. Cars driving up and down the street, people shooting at each other, people drunk out in the middle of the sidewalk.
Welcome back to Brave Little State. Today, reporter Kevin Trevelin is in the Northeast Kingdom to explore life during federal prohibition in the 1920s and early 30s. Here's Kevin. It's easy to see why the car chases and clever smuggling tricks from prohibition would get so much attention. They're exciting, the kind of stuff you'd see in a movie. But a lot of quote-unquote smuggling wasn't as flashy, and it sometimes involved children. Hey, good to meet you. This is Spencer Cookley. Bob Hunt works with the Old Stonehouse Museum and Historic Village in Brownington. His great-grandfather ran a grocery store in Derby near the border, and he would dispatch Bob's dad, who was in elementary school at the time, to cross the border and get a little something. As I understand it, my father would quite often run errands for his grandfather and would go down to... uh, his aunt and uncle's house in Rock Island and returned with a bottle for his grandfather. Uh, Probably was a pretty common occurrence at the time. Bob says his family was well-connected and had relatives working for customs on both sides of the border. So even if there was someone on duty, they probably knew who my father was. And if they had any inkling, they weren't uh, worried about it. Bob's story stood out to me during my reporting because it's a good example of how the reality of prohibition might have been difficult for the lawmakers in Washington, D.C. to understand. For many in the Northeast Kingdom, the border existed only on a map. It didn't really disrupt their day-to-day lives. Bob's father was American and his mother Canadian. The Vermont-based family had relatives in Rock Island, Quebec, and went to church in nearby Stansted, Quebec. Even when I was a kid in the late 50s and early 60s, I would, you know, cross the street and go down to my great aunt's house in Canada. Kids never bother to check in at customs or anything like that. Another thing Vermonters didn't like about federal prohibition, being told they could no longer make their own alcohol. Back during the colonial era, farmers made hard cider because alcohol was a natural preservative. It was a way to stretch their harvests into other seasons. Hops was actually one of the state's major cash crops during the 1800s, particularly in the Northeast Kingdom. So some Vermonters still had the wherewithal to make their own hooch during Prohibition. That's what got me interested in the story of Joseph Goulet. He used to sell Chevys in Island Pond, about 30 minutes south of the border. The building is now a used car dealership run by his two sons, Albert and Craig. I'm stopping by to meet them. How many doors do you guys got here? <laughs> door one or door two? Which one do I choose? Whichever one has Craig behind it. No, no. Talk to Albert. That's my brother. He can remember all that. I can't remember shit. All right. The sons say their dad claimed to have brewed beer during Prohibition. But the details are as hazy as, uh, say, an unfiltered IPA. Where did they make it over? Over there? Right in the Roxy Theater. Yeah, that's what I thought. They had a house there, yeah, upstairs. The upstairs they're referring to is the house where their family lived during Prohibition, right across the street from the garage we're sitting in. As the story goes, their dad's brewing operation was based in his mom's kitchen, but she wasn't a big fan of her son's entrepreneurial spirit. I remember the time he said, my mother told me that if I don't quit selling this, and he made good stuff, he said, good beer, Everybody liked his better than anybody else. He said, uh, you're going to go to jail. He says, you've got to give this up. And he said, I did. You can almost imagine it like a scene from a sitcom. Joseph's mom walking in the kitchen, flabbergasted by the bready smell wafting from the pot boiling on the stove. 
But I think this gets at an important point about prohibition in the Northeast Kingdom. A lot of the people breaking laws weren't mastermind criminals. They were everyday Vermonters who were trying to make a few extra bucks to support their families during a difficult economic time. Albert says the beer brewing was just another one of his dad's hustles in a long line of them. Think of the old joke, what do you call a Vermonter with two jobs? Lazy. Run the school buses. He was an undertaker. So many different things. Taxi as a taxi. He couldn't read or write. But he did everything. The Goulets don't really remember much else about their dad's brewing. Craig did admit he wasn't always listening when his father was telling stories from the Prohibition era. Oh, no, I can't remember anything more. I, I just can't remember. But Craig's still trying to help out with my reporting. So I hop in the car and follow him to the home of Rebecca Lafave, one of his neighbors in Island Pond. Hello. He thought Rebecca might recall stories from that time. I, I know Gordon wouldn't remember, and, mm-hmm. and I'm a little bit younger than he is. Is so. there anybody else you can... This is getting kind of fun. I'm starting to feel like an old-school gumshoe detective, or maybe just someone chasing a wild goose that has long since flown away. To think of yeah, I know. We're yeah. all, I told him we're, we're the old people. What about now. Frank Allard? Time to go see if Frank's home. He only lives a couple blocks away. All right, everyone's in the same place, huh? Craig drops me off after we get there and he makes introductions. I gotta go, Frank, so I'm leaving you to him. Yeah, okay. He's a good boy. Appreciate it, Craig. Yeah, you're in good hands. Good boy. (laughs) Okay. Frank is 95 years old, but unfortunately doesn't have too many Prohibition-related stories from his childhood. Not that I really recall. We still have a nice conversation, though. Shout out to Frank. After the war, when the peace treaty was signed. Anyway, this lack of recall is part of why this whole Prohibition story is interesting to me. Driving from town to town, I kept thinking about how badly I wish I could have reported this story 30 or 40 years ago. Nobody still alive that I'm speaking to has a thorough understanding of how their ancestors were involved in this pivotal era of Northeast Kingdom history. One of my big takeaways from the experience didn't even involve alcohol or prohibition. It was how easily family history can slip away to time, especially if it's not recorded. By the 1930s, opposition to prohibition had grown. The Great Depression dropped the country into economic ruin, and the absence of tax revenue from alcohol sales didn't help. Mostly, though, everyday people were just plain tired of dealing with the ban. By the time you get to the mid to late 1920s, it is really clear that national prohibition was a terrible idea, that it's unenforceable, that it is a solution to a problem that doesn't exist that it is a huge waste of time for law enforcement. And there was just sort of like a growing exhaustion in Vermont as nationally. People were sick of it. Paul Searles is a historian at Northern Vermont University in Lindenville. We meet up right in town. He says this community embodied that sense of exhaustion. Lindenville was once considered one of New England's major smuggling hubs. It even had its own nickname. Vermont's toughest town. As the Caledonian Record reported in 1931, someone in Congress said there were more men from Lindenville in federal prison per capita than any other place in the country. 
It was close to a major highway, but far enough from the border to avoid a big federal presence. So criminals set up shop there as a convenient waypoint before transporting booze around New England. The perceived lawlessness and police inaction got so bad that state and federal bigwigs eventually got involved. It's a story Paul shares as we walk toward a neighborhood off the main drag. So the big tipping point was in July of 1931, and I'll take you to the house. Paul points out a pale blue two-story building, the former home of Herman Butterfield. And this is the house here. He was the part-time police chief. Back at the tail end of Prohibition, Herman seized a load of booze and stored it in the potato cellar of his house. The next day, he left for work. And soon after, four bootleggers arrived, carrying revolvers. In broad daylight, with all the neighbors watching, they parked right here in the street, and they broke into his house. They went down to his potato cellar, grabbed all the alcohol, put it in their car, and sort of drove off waving at people. It was lacked subtlety, to say the least, and it sort of like gives you an idea about exactly how confident the bootleggers were that they could basically get away with anything. That led a group of residents to form a vigilance committee, basically their own little militia to deal with the rum runners. It really makes uh, the town appear to be like citizens are having to take the law into their own hands in the most extreme way. After that, Paul says Lindenville developed a national reputation thanks to newspaper articles that ran across the wire, including one from a Boston paper. And it made Lindenville out to seem like it was just the Wild West. It was like cars driving up and down the street, people shooting at each other, people drunk out in the middle of the sidewalk. I mean, it really sort of like portrayed Lindenville in this awful light. These days, Lindenville is once again a quiet community, known for the university or as a gateway to nearby Burke Mountain. Most of the people I talk to there don't have any idea that it was once considered a bootlegger's paradise. Where'd you learn all this? Oh, no, I'm surprised. I really am. I mean, crazy. I wonder how much my family had to do with it. <laughs> In 1933, federal prohibition ended when Congress passed the 21st Amendment. Beer and liquor could now flow as freely as the rivers of Vermont. New breweries and distilleries could again dot the landscape of towns like Peacham, just as they used to before they were squeezed out of existence by the tight grip of government. Right? Not so much. One of prohibition's impacts in Vermont was wiping out decades of knowledge about making alcohol. So when you think about Vermont being effectively dry for 80 years, that that is roughly three generations. Adam Krakowski is a food and beverage historian based in Queechy. He's written books about alcohol and prohibition. And he says 80 years because of the decades many Vermont towns were dry even before federal prohibition. There was a lecture I heard years ago from a historian where he said, uh, every generation's a half-life. So the next generation is going to lose half the knowledge of the previous generation. So when you think about three straight generations of brewing, you've wiped that whole notion of brewing off. He says the loss of knowledge meant would-be brewers and distillers had a harder time finding mentors. But even if they could figure it out, they wouldn't actually ply their trade for some time. Adam says the other lasting effect of prohibition was how unfriendly Vermont's laws were to alcohol makers in the decades following its repeal. In all accounts that I found in research, everybody had said that the laws were so spider-webbed that it was a struggle to get the operations open. Vermont's first new brewery or distillery after Prohibition didn't open until the mid-80s, roughly 50 years after that era ended. That was Catamount Brewing in White River Junction. And you don't need me to tell you that Vermont's beer scene has exploded since then. 
Take it from this Vermont PBS special from 1991. Today's microbreweries are producing a wide variety of taste-tantalizing beers that pose a growing challenge to the blander products of the large American breweries. Vermont is an East Coast leader in this national trend. So yes, prohibition did lead to a loss of generational knowledge, which meant Vermont brewers, all those years later, had to figure out new ways to do things. With that loss of information and kind of wipe there, you have a clean slate. Let's be a little creative. There's no precedence here. And Adam says that ingenuity is part of why the state's reputation for great beer is so strong. Sure, ferment your brew in an old milk tank. Why not add apricot to a pale ale and spark a craft beer movement? To me, it sure sounds like the same sort of plucky resourcefulness that Vermonters had during Prohibition when they were sneaking rubber rafts full of booze past customs checkpoints or hiding whiskey in baby bottles. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Nathan Bangs for the great question. You can find old photos from Prohibition-era Vermont at our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can also submit your own question about Vermont, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at BraveStateVT. By the way, December 5th, a few months from now, will mark the 89th anniversary of the repeal of federal prohibition. So if you want to honor this very random anniversary, might I suggest a toast with Brave Little State Pale Ale. That's right, our show has a namesake beer, and it's brewed by Lawson's Finest Liquids in Waitsfield. Kevin Trevelin reported this episode. I produced it and did the mix and sound design. Editing and additional production from the rest of the Brave Little State team, Angela Evansy, Myra Flynn, and May Nagusky. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Kate Phillips, Peter Martin, Odette Crawford, and Adrian Tebow. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public. We have support from our station's sustaining members. If you like our show, you can join them at bravelittlestate.org donate. Or just find some friends and tell them to listen. I'm Josh Crane. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont storytelling. Until then, keep an eye on Shirley and Pete. Shirley and Pete were the two biggest known smugglers of the family. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.